Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the 11th audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants for graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. Today's episode will, one, track the history of LGBTQ plus movements, primarily at the US and Canada, with a particular emphasis on trans history, and two, discuss trans and intersex identities. Let's get started. The song for today's class is I Am Her by Shay Diamond. Shay Diamond has been trailblazer for trans women in the music industry. I Am Her starts with a bold statement. If you had to wear my shoes, you'd probably take them off too. The New York City-based singer-songwriter packed the track with strong lyrics, singing, Your ignorance leaves a hell of a stench. The aroma lingers on generations unknown. Shay Diamond's music confronts the kinds of violence black trans women face while celebrating beauty and creativity. Her statement on the song, starting quote, My name is Shay Diamond, singer-songwriter based in New York City by way of Flint, Michigan. I was born into a gender role that I did not accept, and I didn't feel like myself. Desperate to find the financial needs to transition to my true gender, I committed a crime in 1999 and was sentenced to 10 years in a men's prison. While incarcerated, I found a community that shared my trans experience. It was there where I found my voice. I began writing I Am Her as a statement to the world that said I shouldn't exist. I wrote it as an anthem for all those who felt shunned for simply being who they were. In 2009, I was released from prison. Shortly after my release, I moved to New York City where I found a studio to record I Am Her and the means to create a video for my song." End quote. Shay Diamond's music and story behind writing this song bring up important themes for today's lecture. Focusing on the 20th and 21st centuries, primarily in the United States and Canada, as Shay Diamond discusses, trans people have been treated and continue to be treated like outlaws. We'll discuss these histories while coming back to art, beauty, and celebration of trans people. The last lecture focused on theories around sexuality and the establishment of queer theory. 
Today's lecture will be to map out the history of transgender activism and intersex activism, which interweaves with lesbian, gay, and queer histories. A note on terms. I'm going to be speaking about a 120-year period, where terms change fairly frequently. From transsexual and transvestite to transgender, homosexual to gay and lesbian to queer, cross-dressing and drag queens, as best as possible, I aim to use the terms that people use for themselves. Some people use multiple terms to describe themselves, and if I use a single term, please know that I am using these terms with respect and within specific context. Regarding this topic, American writer, television host, director, producer, and transgender rights activist, and author of the memoir, Redefining Realness, Janet Mock writes, Self-definition and self-determination is about many varied decisions that we have to make to compose and journey toward ourselves. About the audacity and strength to proclaim, create, and evolve into who we know ourselves to be. It's okay if your personal definition is in a constant state of flux as you navigate the world, end quote. The terms also shift and change over time. I'm going to play a short segment from the podcast The Illusionist by Helen Zaltzman, a podcast about language. In episode 117, Zaltzman interviews Dr. Harry Josephine Giles, who created an LGBTQ lexicon for the Scots language. When you dig in to the words that you can use for LGBT plus people, you realize like how much ideology and how much kind of social assumption is built into every word that we use so you know we have these kind of quasi-scientific terms homosexual transsexual whatever that have their origins in 19th and 20th century sexology and the assumptions of those disciplines and are built into how we think about ourselves and then we have kind of mid-20th century community terms like gay and lesbian and later on transgender that come out of particular political movements and then we have reclaimed slurs like queer and dyke that have come in a bit later and that kind of indicate a sort of orientation to your orientation so that's all there in english and then when you dig into it in another language it really exposes how all of that stuff is happening and it gives you a kind of chance to to like reimagine the way that you imagine yourself. Because it's not just that English kind of erases pre-existing context, but also that English kind of limits our imagination. That English's kind of supposed universality, it, it pretends to be the language of, of science, it pretends to kind of transparency and clarity. We don't realise what assumptions are laden in that. In that clip, Giles draws a attention to and speaks about sexology terms, the community terms, the reclaimed terms, and the weight and power of language. Giles draws attention to the limitations of our vocabulary, with so many terms coming into English from one source, Charles Gilbert Chaddock's 1892 translation into English of Richard von Kraft Ebbing's 1886 book, Psychopathia Sexualis, which coined sexuality terms such as heterosexual, homosexual, sadist and masochistic, and bisexual. Giles later in the interview says, Our behavior and our desires will always exceed any terminology that anyone can come up with. And so rather than trying to find the right terms, and this for me is what working in, what trying to come up with an LGBT Scots glossary does. It's a chance to imagine. 
as a chance not to come up with the right way of saying things, but to say, what if we thought about it this way? What if we thought about it that way? What assumptions are built into the languages that we use? Being non-binary, Giles wanted to determine Scots. That does not come just from restating the English word, and instead uses the term utwither. All of this is to say that the language that we use cannot fully encompass everything that we want to discuss, and that language is always situated culturally in a particular time. It is important to respect the terms people use for themselves. Okay, so we're going to shift gears a bit. You may have heard that the Stonewall riots, that Stonewall started the gay rights movement, or was the spark to the LGBTQ plus movement. We are going to complicate that narrative today. Throughout the 20th century, police raids happened on gay bars, lesbian bars, and queer bars, as discussed by George Chauncey in his book, Gay New York, Gender, Urban Culture, and the Making of the Gay Male World, 1890-1940. Chauncey, like other historians of LGBTQ history, discusses the importance of bar culture for gay men and lesbian women in particular to socialize. A classic text, Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold, the History of a Lesbian Community by Elizabeth Lepowski Kennedy and Madeline Davis looks at the lesbian bar culture in the 1930s until the early 1960s in Buffalo, New York. In the Canadian context, Making a Scene, Lesbians and Community Across Canada, 1964-84 by Liz Millward and The House That Joe Built by Becky Ross, which focuses on the 1970s in Toronto, also speak to the importance of lesbian and gay bars, if you're interested in the topic of gay, lesbian, or queer bar history, there are quite a few books on the topic. There were differences between communities, whether the bars were divided between gay men and lesbians, or whether a gay man would enter with a lesbian woman and then the groups would divide until police arrived. We can see particularly in instances of this in areas where it was illegal for women to enter bars unattended by a man. There were also differences in the bar scene depending on the class and racial demographics of the customers. There were also differences in whether bars were welcoming to people who cross-dressed, a term for wearing clothes not associated with your gender, sometimes people who did the self-identified as transvestites, or were drag queens or drag kings, people who dress and act to perform a different gender expression. In Montreal, there were frequent raids on gay bars and lesbian bars and queer bars. The city did not apologize until 2017. One infamous raid was the 1977 raid on the bar trucks, which was part of the 1976 campaign in Montreal to clean up the city before the Olympics, which meant the targeting of lesbian and gay spaces. If you are interested in learning more about the Montreal-specific cases of bar raids, I'd like to direct you to the Quebec Gay Archives, located here in Montreal. A few years ago, some of my students wrote blog posts about this history and other aspects of queer history in Montreal using these archives. I've linked to it in the transcript. All this is to say, police raids on bar spaces were commonplace and violent. Policing took place in more forms than bar raids. Throughout the 1950s and 1960s, the US FBI and police departments kept lists of known homosexuals, their favorite establishments, and friends. The U.S. Post Office kept track of addresses where material pertaining to homosexuality was mailed, state and local governments followed suit, bars catering to gay men and lesbians were shut down, and their customers were arrested and exposed in newspapers. Cities performed sweeps. 
to rid neighborhoods, parks, bars, and beaches of gay people. They outlawed the wearing of opposite gender clothes, and universities expelled instructors suspected of being homosexual. For example, women were required to wear three pieces of feminine clothing and could be arrested if not found wearing them. Laws like these resulted in the arrest of butch lesbians, cross-dressers, transvestites, drag queens, and drag kings. People who, gender non-conforming, gender theorist, Kate Bornstein would place within a spectrum of gender outlaws. It is important to recognize that people of color and poorer folks were more likely to face arrest and police harassment. Police were not the only disciplining force used against non-heterosexual folks. In Foucault's sense of biopower, as we discussed in the last lecture, the institution of medicine and the asylum were used as other disciplining forces. In 1952, the American Psychiatric Association listed homosexuality in the Diagnostic and Status Statistical Manual, DSM, as a mental disorder. Homosexuality remained in the DSM until 1974. Relatedly, the DSM called transgender identity sexual deviations in 1968. In 1980, it was psychosexual disorders, and in 1994, it was sexual and gender identity disorders. The DSM-5 changed the listing of transgender to gender dysphoria in 2013. Activists want the DSM to depathologize trans experience. We see that in response to the pathologization and policing of gay, lesbian, and trans folks, some people tried to gain acceptance through the creation of homophile societies that rested on a politics of respectability. Respectability politics is the act of trying to gain acceptance by showing that your group is respectable. Respectable in this sense means that the personal social values as being continuous and compatible with dominant values of white, heterosexual, Western society. This moralistic discourse can be used to police some of their fellow group members. Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham first articulated the concept in 1993 in her book, Righteous Descent, The Women's Movement in the Black Baptist Church, 1880-1920. In the context of Black American history, respectability politics was a way of attempting to consciously set aside and undermine cultural and moral practices thought to be disrespected by wider white-dominated society, especially in the context of family and good manners. Within the gay rights movement, a respectability politics has fed into homonormativity. Early gay rights organizations relied on a respectability politics. In Los Angeles in 1950, the Mattachine Society was founded. The original objectives were to unify homosexuals, educate them, provide leadership, and assist sexual deviants with legal troubles. However, they faced pushback for seeming too radical, and in 1953, the Mattachines shifted their focus to assimilation and respectability with the justification that they would change more minds about homosexuality by proving that gay men and lesbians were normal people, no different from heterosexuals. Around the same time, the Daughters of Bilitis were founded in San Francisco. For lesbians, although like the Mattachine Society, the group had initially different goals than respectability, the eight women who created the Daughters of Bilitis initially came together to be able to have a safe place to dance. They eventually developed similar goals to the Mattachine Society and urged their members to assimilate into greater society. 
While these groups made important contributions to gay rights, an emphasis on respectability politics was inherently exclusive. Not everyone could or wanted to be respectable. Furthermore, intersecting factors and identities of race and class already barred some people from being seen as respectable to begin with. In addition, the Mattachine Society and Daughters of Bilitis considered being arrested for wearing clothing of, an under, of another gender as a parallel to the struggles of homophile organizations, similar but distinctly separate, and definitely cross-dressing or being a transvestite or being a drag queen or drag king or trans was considered to be outside of the respectability politics. These are the conditions in which the Stonewall riots occurred under. The Stonewall riots happened in 1969 in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan, New York City. The Stonewall riots are also sometimes referred to as the Stonewall Uprising or the Stonewall Rebellion. There were a series of spontaneous demonstrations by members of the gay LGBT community in response to a police raid that began in the early morning hours of June 28, 1969 at the Stonewall Inn. Patrons of the Stonewall other village lesbian and gay bars and other queer people in the neighborhood fought back when the police became violent. Stonewall, like many gay spaces, was owned by the mafia. The bar was a place where the mafia could extort closeted patrons and make money on alcohol without a liquor license. Police raids were frequent, almost monthly. In June of 1969, people fought back. Key figures in the Stonewall riots were Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Riviera. They co-founded the tra- the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, also known as STAR, a group dedicated to helping homeless young drag queens, gay youth, and trans women. Trans women of color and drag queens played a pivotal role in the Stonewall riots. Stonewall was a really important event in gay liberation and LGBTQ rights. However, it was not the first riot, and it is part of a larger history of LGBTQ activism and part of a history where trans folks played an important role. If you did the readings for today, you already know that Stonewall was not the first riot. For today, we read Susan Stryker's Transgender History, Homonormativity, and Disciplinarity from 2008. Susan Stryker is a trans-American professor, author, filmmaker, and theorist. She made the movie Screaming Queens, The Riot at Compton's Cafeteria. Stryker brings attention to earlier riots. Gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people staged a small riot at the Cooper Donuts Cafe in Los Angeles in 1959 in response to police harassment. Stryker brings attention to a larger 1966 event in San Francisco's Tenderloin District when drag queens, sex workers, and trans women were sitting in Compton's cafeteria when the police arrived to arrest people who were read as men dressed as women. That sentence there speaks to a lot of assumptions the police were making about who men and women were and what it means to dress like someone of a certain gender. When the police arrived, a riot ensued, with the cafeteria patrons slinging cups, plates, and saucers and breaking the plexiglass windows in the front of the restaurant and returning several days later to smash the windows again after they were replaced. So why don't we hear much about it? Why is there so much emphasis on Stonewall? A couple of reasons. One has to do with the politics of respectability and who was seen as the face of the gay rights movement. Despite the move over the past few years to reclaim the history of trans women's important activism at Stonewall, 
such as Marsha P. Johnson and the self-described street queen Sylvia Rivera, until recently, much of the focus was on the Stonewall riots had been telling a history of white gay men's activism. Within the Compton cafeteria, that politics of respectability and cultural legibility couldn't happen. Compton's cafeteria was a chain of restaurants open 24 hours. Many trans women would congregate there at night because they faced discrimination in gay bars. The staff began to call police on them and charge a service fee for them to be served there. Many were arrested for a crime called female impersonation. Compton's cafeteria was in a multi-ethnic, working-class neighborhood, and many of the people involved in the riot were sex workers. This presents a different narrative than normative gay and lesbian campus activism narrative. Susan Stryker classifies the Compton's Cafeteria riot as an act of anti-transgender discrimination rather than an act of discrimination against sexual orientation and connects the uprising to the issues of gender, race, and class that were being downplayed by homophile organizations. It marked the beginning of trans activism in San Francisco. Stryker's piece does more than draw attention to Compton's cafeteria riots. She discusses homonormativity not only as a queer politic of assimilation into hegemonic culture, this kind of dominant culture, but as gender normativity in gay and lesbian contexts. Similar to Lisa Dugan, whose work we described discussed in the last lecture, she argues that much of lesbian and gay agenda is based on a civil rights strategy where assimilation into and replication of dominant institutions are the goals. Stryker draws attention to the ways that gender is still policed in a homonormative way in queer political movements. Judith Jack Halperstam, another important scholar whose work you will likely read in other gender studies courses, argues that female masculinity is often ostracized in normative gay and lesbian contexts as in heterosexual contexts. So here we can see the ways in which trans activism was sometimes aligned with queer and gay and lesbian activism, sometimes diverged, and sometimes was oppositional to it. Trans theory and activism has its own specific history and should not be collapsed into queer or gay or lesbian activism despite overlap. With today's lecture, I aim to show how these histories interweave, but there is also conflict. Trans people were sometimes excluded, sometimes included, in, and sometimes included in queer movements. For example, some radical lesbian feminist subcultures notoriously excluded trans women, but not always trans men, to the same extent, based on the centralist ideas about gender in the 1970s and 80s. You can see this trans-exclusionary rhetoric of women-born women come up today. That's the rhetoric, women-born women. You also see the way that trans folks were excluded from gay male spaces, and the way that politics of respectability created a charm circle, to use the language of theorist Gail Rubrin, of an acceptable kind of way to be gay, and what was considered deviant and outside of the charm circle. In the 1970s and even early 1980s, lesbians and gay men did a lot of their activism separately, with many lesbians working within lesbian feminist communities. It is with the 1980s AIDS crisis that we see more of a cohesion of what became the lesbian and gay rights movement, which then became the lesbian, gay, and bi rights, and then LGBTQ+. 
As with all the topics discussed today, the history of AIDS and HIV is complicated. While lesbians were one of the lowest risk groups for contacting or transmitting the virus, lesbian activists worked alongside gay men and bisexual folks to advocate for research and resources to be dedicated to understanding the virus and supporting folks with it. During the high point of the AIDS crisis, violence against LGBTQ plus people was also very prevalent. It was through the AIDS crisis that you see more of a cohesion of LGBTQ plus groups and organizing. This is not to say that there was and is still not conflict and disagreement and exclusion. Stryker argues that the construction of trans as a desire-based sexual orientation is a homonormative notion that misrepresents trans experience. In homonormative queer and gay and lesbian politics, trans was understood as a category where all gender deviants could be contained. Stryker contends that transgender activism in theory, quote, understands trans as a modality rather than a category. Here she means mode as a way of being, as a way of something that's experienced. What ends up happening is that for a long time, the T of LGBTQ was silent in a lot of mainstream queer organizations. It is within the past decade that more attention has been on trans rights and the challenges trans communities face. In particular, the epidemic of violence against black trans women, the high rates of how many trans people are unhomed, and the prevalence of suicide or attempted suicide continue to be large issues. Within today's social movements, we can see a politics of respectability play out again and the needs of the most privileged within a group receiving the most resources, power, and attention. Black trans women and trans women of color, for example, have had their needs sidelined within Black Lives Matter movements, feminist activism, and even within trans rights movements. In the upcoming lecture on health, You'll also speak about issues of access to healthcare for trans folks. As mentioned above, health institutions have the ability to control, regulate, and police people and their bodies. While Christine Jorgensen was the first American trans woman to become widely known for undergoing sex reassignment surgery in the 1950s, taking hormones and undergoing a series of surgeries in Copenhagen. So to clarify, there is no single surgery that phrases a misnomer. Today, we speak of gender-affirming surgeries rather than reassignment. Jorgensen described herself as transsexual, which was the term that was popular until transgender became more of an umbrella term, and transsexual tended to be used to describe individuals who had surgeries. Trans folks who want access to hormones and surgeries have often had to interact with medical professionals who've expected the born in the wrong body narrative that Jorgensen once described. Many trans folks resist this narrative as not being their own experience. While trans folks can have difficulty obtaining gender affirming surgeries, many intersex activists say they actually have the opposite problem and that surgeries have been forced upon them without their consent. If you remember in our earlier lecture, the Intersex Society of North America, ISNA, defines intersex as a general term used for a variety of conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't seem to fit the typical definitions of female or male. A challenge intersex folks face is that they are often subjected to surgeries as babies or children without their consent. I will quote at length from the ISNA website to explain this phenomenon. To be clear though, 
Intersex advocates are not saying that it is wrong if a doctor has to do a life-saving surgery, such as if a urethra does not reach the exterior of a body and the person cannot urinate. Rather, the issue is that many of these surgeries are done without the consent of the individuals, and even in some cases, people grow up having never been told about the surgeries. Many of these surgeries are done to make bodies fit within a narrow definition of what is considered by doctors to be normal, with arbitrary conditions such as the length of a penis or clit on a baby. This quote from ISNA begins, Although it is true that the urge to perform surgeries on intersex children's sex anatomies is sometimes born out of the belief that children must have sex anatomies that are clearly male or female in order to be comfortable in either male or female gender, and this is clearly a harmful belief born out of antiquated notions about gender identity corresponding directly to genital anatomy, the idea of raising a child as a boy or girl isn't what most adults with intersex conditions point to as their main problem. Instead, adults with intersex conditions who underwent genital surgeries at early ages most often cite those early genital surgeries and the lies and shame surrounding those procedures as their source of pain. Later in life, like many people with typical anatomies, intersex people take pleasure in what some gender scholars, like Judith Butler, might call doing their gender. Thus, intersex people don't tell us that the very concept of gender is oppressive to them. Instead, it's the childhood surgeries performed on them and the accompanying lies and shame that are problematic. Again, many of these surgeries are performed with the belief that these procedures will help a child settle into a gender world, but that doesn't mean the whole system of gender must fall in order for people with intersex conditions to live healthy, happy, fulfilling lives. It simply means that these surgeries and the shame that surrounds them are an unfortunate instantation of problematic gender norms, and we should work on ending unwanted surgeries and stigma. There are, of course, some people with intersex conditions who identify as a third gender or genderqueer, just as there are some people with completely typical sex anatomies who don't identify as strictly male or female. Our aim at ISNA isn't to undermine these people's goals or to suggest that people who identify as a third gender don't exist or don't matter or to suggest that everyone must adopt a gender. Rather, we hope to aim the painful and unnecessary childhood surgeries that rob people of corporeal autonomy and sexual function because everyone, regardless of gender identity, deserves that. And we hope to end the shame and secrecy that caused so much pain for so many people with intersex conditions, end quote. It's really important to listen to the needs of people from within a community. Intersex advocate and artist Pigeon Pagonis fights for bodily autonomy. I linked to Pigeon's website in the transcript. Pigeon and many intersex advocates are against surgeries done without the consent of individuals and that these surgeries should only be done when an individual can consent to them and wants them. We so rarely get to hear and see intersex stories and Pigeon hopes their art and the art of others can uplift these stories. The first ever North American demonstration around intersex issues was not until 1996. It wasn't until the 2000s when intersex advocates were invited to speak at medical conferences about intersex issues, particularly regarding the gender assignment of newborns. Many intersex people do not view themselves as being part of the transgender umbrella, where some people do. Some intersex people describe themselves as genderqueer, and some do not. There's a multiplicity of experiences. 
With today's lecture, I want to draw attention to some of the needs of intersex and trans communities, placing their activism within a longer history of activism related to gender, sexuality, and sexual orientation. We've talked in our class multiple times how even though the gender binary is socially constructed and sexuality is fluid and exists on a spectrum, heteronormativity and the investment in the gender binary by certain parts of Western society continue to affect the everyday experiences of so many people. I wanna wrap up today's lecture with three final topics. The first is gender inclusive language. While the lectures in this class are in English and we have spoken a bit about gender inclusive language and pronoun use, we haven't spoken about French, which is a highly gendered language. Since our class takes place in Montreal and since you are also able to turn in your papers in French, I want to direct you to a guide for writing terms in French and gender-inclusive writing produced by our librarian Michael David Miller. The link is in the transcript. The second is that while queer elders have laid the groundwork in an activism that has enabled new generations of activists to work towards a more socially just world and work towards gaining rights for lesbian, gay, bi, queer, trans, two-spirit, and intersex individuals, there's a phenomenon where many elders are forced to go back into the closet when they are older and are in elder care centers. I linked in the show notes to an organization that seeks to address this phenomenon. The Dignity for Lesbian, Gay, Bi, Trans, Queer, Intersex, and Two-Spirit Project seeks to improve the conditions of today's older lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and two-spirit individuals when they enter long-term care. The organization states, This cohort grew up in a time when homosexuality and the expression of a transgender identity were particularly hostile. While many positive changes have occurred since then, this cohort still feels they must conceal their identity when entering into long-term care. Part of this initiative is developing inclusive and affirming care for LGBTQ2S plus seniors. The final topic is that while we discuss social justice issues, we focus on the many injustices marginalized communities face. It is also important to look at art, self-expression, beauty, and joy. Chris Vargas is an artist and video maker whose work explores the way that queer and trans people negotiate institutions and popular culture. Vargas is the founder of the Museum of Transgender History and Art, MOFA, a project that was artist and curatorial practice. I linked to information about MOFA in the transcript. In the next class, we will be talking about class. All the video songs, images, and graphics used in podcasts and transcript belong to their respective words. Owners and I do not claim any right over them. The opening bells found is School Bell dot Wave from 13F Panskas, Transga, Michaela, and the closing bells from Inspector J's Bell Killer A dot Wave of Freesound.org. Fair dealing is an exception in Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permitted unauthorized use of copyright materials for specific mandated purposes in Canada. These purposes include research, privacy, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news reporting for research and privacy, education, parody, and satire. No special requirements are required for criticism, review, and news reporting. The source and author must be named to constitute fair needling. This is an advertisement-free podcast used for educational purposes.